Welcome to Oncology Today, key presentations from the 2020 American Society of Hematology ASH annual meeting. This is issue one, focused on chronic lymphocytic leukemia and follicular lymphoma. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Anne Lacoste from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. To begin, Dr. Lacoste reviewed an ASH presentation on real-world prognostic biomarker testing and treatment patterns in patients with CLL. Hi, I'm Anne Lacoste from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, and I'll be talking about abstracts in CLL and follicular lymphoma from the 2020 meeting. So starting first with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, there was a lot of very interesting abstracts presented. I'll start with this one presented by Anthony Mato from Memorial Sloan Kettering. This was a very interesting real-world look at the use of prognostic biomarker testing in patients with CLL and included nearly 1,500 patients, both previously treated and relapsed refractory, the majority of whom you can see here were treated in the community setting at nearly 95%, good geographic distribution. What I think is very interesting and somewhat disconcerting is about 60% of the patients did not undergo FISH testing, and nearly 80% of patients did not have evaluation for TP53 mutational status. IGVH mutational status was not done in more than 70% as well. And I think this impacts significantly on our choice, our decision of what therapies to choose for patients in CLL is completely dependent upon these particular markers. And the fact that they're not being checked, I think is we need to do a better job of education. When you look, however, at over time, what therapies are being used, you can see the abrutinib is in the orange and in the previously untreated over the time frame of this analysis from 2015 to 2019, you see significant increase. And in the relapse and refractory setting, you also see more abrutinib. The use of chemoimmunotherapy has dropped dramatically over time. And really at this moment, with what we know, we're only really using chemoimmunotherapy in patients who are IGVH mutated and who do not have high-risk cytogenetic features. So very eye-opening data. Yes. Could I just ask, I'm kind of curious because there have been lots of studies like this where they do these huge database things and say people aren't doing stuff and all. And yeah, I'm not saying it's not true, but I am curious. You see a lot of second opinions now, maybe they're not typical oncologists sending you patients, but do you see the same thing and people get referred to you? They don't have FISH or P53? Yeah, we see that. I would say it's less than it's half of the time, maybe 20% of the time. The IGVH mutational testing is the one I would say that's probably missing the most and or TP53 mutational testing. I think some oncologists may not know where to send that testing or how to interpret it, but we see it not uncommonly though it is changing over time. How about this next paper? So this is a study that is looking at outcomes in patients who were treated with abrutinib on two prior studies, randomized phase three studies, Resonate 2 and Illuminate. There were nearly 500 patients in this combined analysis with good long-term follow-up of more than four years. And you can see in the table one there, the risk factor profile of the Abrutinib-treated patients, there were about 250. There were about 30% who were deletion 17P or TP53. When you look at the IGVH status, below about 146 had either IGVH or deletion 17P, TP53, or 11Q, and 124 were unmutated. And you can see in the force plot on the right here, all groups really benefited from abrutinib compared to chlorambucil therapy. And I think this is not surprising, but is really well illustrated here. And when you look at the 42-month progression-free survival rates, they really look very favorable across all groups, including high-risk patients with 17P and TP53 mutation. So they're between more than 70 to 80% of patients remain in remission on single-agent abrutinib. I also thought this assessment of adverse events looks very favorable and maybe even a little bit surprising. The rates of atrial fibrillation are low by year, only as high as 3%, and they certainly do not increase over time. Neutropenia was seen as an early phenomenon, but then drops off dramatically. And the rates of infection also do not increase over time. So I think this really is very strong data supporting the upfront use of BTK inhibitors. 
Just kind of curious, when you have patients like that, do you favor ibrutinib? A lot of people, and maybe even more now that we're going to be seeing data soon, comparing ibrutinib and calibrutinib in a standard risk situation might favor a calibrutinib. I don't know whether you do or not. I think I've heard that you do. But then I hear people saying, well, there's longer data with ibrutinib. I kind of prefer that. How do you think that one through? I really am not using starting new patients on ibrutinib. I think it is not nearly as well tolerated, not only from the risk of atrial fibrillation, but there is a low but risk of sudden cardiac death. I think we've all heard of a couple of patients in whom this has happened. And generally, the asthenia and myalgias and some nonspecific side effects are, I think, much higher in the ibrutinib treated patients. And I heard that that study looks good, that acalabrutinib looks very good in that and is non-inferior and certainly better tolerated with lower risk atrial fibrillation. I just heard a preview of that. Yeah, right. Do you know, is that going to be presented at ASCO? I presume so. I think it's very important data. And I think some people still feel that for 17P deleted patients, they should be getting, that group should be getting ibrutinib up front. But I don't think we have any reason to think that acalabrutinib won't be equally good. And if patients can stay on it, I personally would start a 17P patient on acalabrutinib up front. Of course, everybody's really looking forward to seeing that phase three data. It kind of reminds me of the big myeloma study, the endurance trial that was presented at this past ASCO. A lot of people thought carfilzomib was going to have better efficacy. It really didn't. They were the same, but it was really interesting how the side effects compared carfilzomib versus pertezomib. We talked to your myeloma people about that. And I guess that's really going to be the thing to look for here, AFib, bleeding, arthralgias, all those things. Any predictions? Or you've already seen the data? I haven't. I've just heard about it. I am pretty confident that the toxicity profile will certainly favor acalabrutinib. And I think the hypertension, too, is something that we commonly see with ibrutinib. And although I haven't treated as many patients for durable periods of time with acalabrutinib, I haven't seen as much hypertension either. Also going to be curious about the bleeding. I'm not so sure right now indirectly. Do you think there's less bleeding with a calibrutinib? I think it's hard to say. I think most of the bleeding that we see is minor. It's bruising. And even with ibrutinib, I think it's relatively rare that you see a clinically significant bleed. Interesting. So let's continue on. And I guess the next abstract looks at chemoimmunotherapy. This was retrospective review, looking at ibrutinib compared to chemoimmunotherapy, and these were large group of patients from academic and community practices, and medical records were extracted, and they divided patients into high-risk or non-high-risk and compared ibrutinib versus chemoimmunotherapy, and then matched them using this statistical methods here. You can see that in this table that they are well-balanced in terms of all of the high-risk features. And then when you look at time to next treatment, not surprisingly, the median was not reached with ibrutinib, whereas with chemoimmunotherapy, it was about three years with good follow-up. And you can see that in the curves there. And then if you look at the percentage of patients who received only one line of therapy during this time, clearly favors ibrutinib. The vast majority, even high-risk patients, more than 80% did not require another line of therapy. And then in the very bottom there on the left, when you look at when patients did need to go on to additional therapy, those who are in the ibrutinib group tended to get venetoclax with or without rituximab, with a small number getting other therapies. And the patients who had gotten chemoimmunotherapy up front went on to ibrutinib. So I thought this was interesting methods. I wonder too, again, this kind of gets into what's going on in practice. Again, the docs I interact with, the docs that you're seeing through second opinion, I don't know how typical they are, but I'm not sure that chemoimmunotherapy has been totally abandoned, BR, in the community. Again, second opinions, you see that? Occasionally, not so frequently, but occasionally we do. And in a patient who's mutated, who's not high risk, occasionally those patients will want to have time-limited therapy or may have significant copay issues with some of the novel drugs. So I think that's a setting in which it makes sense, but you obviously have to get the prognostic indicators up front. Yeah, that's a good point. How about this next one? So this next one was from Jennifer Brown in our group, and she looked, this was a pooled analysis of patients taking a calibrutinib to look at cardiovascular toxicity with over 700 patients. There were 129 cardiac events. And when you look at the rates of atrial fibrillation, obviously the thing we worry about the most, the rates were 4% overall, and for grade three or higher, only 1% of patients. And when she looked at 
all of the patients who had a grade three or higher adverse event, about half of them were able to continue on therapy. And then here, she also looked at time to onset of cardiac events, and you can see the median was about 10 months. And when looking at atrial fibrillation, it was a little bit longer. But interestingly, the patients who did develop atrial fibrillation and hypertension, many of them for AFib flutter, about 20% had had a prior history of this. And the hypertensive patients, the majority had pre-existing hypertension. So again, I think supporting the safety profile of acalabrutinib. I'm sure you have cardio-oncologists there, and there's a whole thing with cardio-oncology. They talk about looking at HER2-positive breast cancer. I'm like, you should look at CLL. I'm curious what your cardio-oncologists think about the pathophysiology of the cardiac issues that you see with BTK, particularly ibrutinib. They think it's probably related to other tyrosine kinases that are impacted by particularly ibrutinib and less so with acalabrutinib. And is this a direct sort of myocardial toxicity? I don't think it's a direct myocardial toxicity. It seems to be, but I'm not sure it somehow affects the conduction system. But yeah, I don't know the pathophysiology. We have very good cardio-oncologists who are interested in this, but it's not clear to me that the mechanism has been completely well understood. So how about this next paper? So this is the ASCEND trial, more long-term follow-up, the final results. This was a study of patients with relapse and refractory CLL who were randomized to acalabrutinib or idelalisib plus rituximab or BR investigator choice. And you can see in the table below, the duration of exposure is significantly shorter in patients who did not receive acalabrutinib. And when you look at the progression-free survival curves here, there is a clear improvement in PFS with acalabrutinib compared to the other arms. And I thought it was interesting that the BR and the idelalisib plus rituximab arms look fairly similar here, overlapping, with an 18-month PFS for acal being 82%, which looks very favorable. And when you look at the toxicity, again, sort of what we would expect, very low rates of grade 3 or higher atrial fibrillation or minor 3% hemorrhage. So I think this, again, puts the nail in the coffin of bendamustine plus rituximab in the relapse setting for sure. So moving on, this was presented looking at the clonal dynamics for the CLL14 trial. This is the really important trial that compared from Germany, comparing venetoclax plus obinutuzumab, time-limited therapy for one year, compared to chlorambucil plus obinutuzumab, and they did really nice correlative studies looking at MRD assessments at three to six months. And there's this complicated but interesting little chart over here that looks at clonal dynamics over time. So the deepest MRD is at the bottom in the dark green, and you can see that percentage of MRD negativity increases between cycle seven, day one, and the three-month follow-up, though there is a group of patients whose MRD is becoming higher as you move along. When you look at the top bars, the orange and the red, those are patients who do not achieve MRD negativity. So the MRD can deepen over time, but there is a small proportion of patients who do lose their MRD. When they looked overall at the group on the upper left here, you can see the chlorambucil group. There are very few MRD negativity patients at the end of treatment, but looks very reasonable for venenoclax plus obinutuzumab. And then they looked at these kinetics at the bottom. So if you were at the end of treatment, you had declining MRD, it appeared that maybe continuing venetoclax could deepen response. But for those patients who were evolving MRD over time, it makes perfect sense that those are patients who are probably not going to benefit from additional venetoclax. And then the four-year PFS looks, I think, very good at 74%. This is a very well-tolerated combination. When you start with the obinutuzumab, many patients don't have high-risk disease when you need to add in the venetoclax and is really a very appropriate treatment for elderly patients. So it was nice to see these follow-up data. So this next paper looked at the five-year analysis of the Murano study. This was a study in the relapse and refractory setting where patients were randomized to venetoclax plus rituximab versus bendamustine plus rituximab for two years of fixed duration in the venetoclax plus rituximab arm. And you can see over time, this PFS benefit has really held up with the median being 53 months, which looks great. And in the BR arm is 17 months. But I think what's even more interesting is that the overall survival benefit is very statistically significant with a hazard ratio of 0.4. And I think 
this really tells us we need to be very careful as we design new studies what the control arm is. We shouldn't be using chemoimmunotherapy. The other thing that comes up is indirectly trying to compare PFS of ibrutinib of a BTK versus venetoclaxabinituzumab. It kind of looks pretty similar. I think it's kind of close to five years for ibrutinib. And here it looks like it's almost five years, very similar. So I guess indirectly, they look similar at this point. Yeah. And I think that's sort of been our clinical experience as well. And this was interesting, again, MRD analysis here, I'm looking at the end of treatment. And then for patients who convert to being MRD positive, the median time was 19 months. And then it was another about six months before patients then had clinical progression. And you can see in the bottom, this correlated, as one might anticipate, with risk factors of 17P and complex cytogenetics and IGBH. Not too many 17P patients there, but I'm kind of curious, do you stop therapy in your patients who are 17P or P53? I tend to keep treating them until we have more data. And the other ones, again, even if the other patients, if they're MRD, regardless of MRD, you stop at two years? So I haven't had this come up in the era of being able to send MRD testing. I think here, because we anticipate that patients are going to convert, it's not as though it's obviously a curative therapy. So I think I would have that discussion with patients and we are starting to send more commercial MRD testing to really be able to have a more informed discussion with patients. Another just practical question related to Murano, not so much about this paper, but just thinking about it that I hear from oncologists all the time is the way that the venetoclax and the anti-CD20, plus it's a different CD20, is different in Murano than it was in CLL14 and how that affects the weight. I hear some oncologists saying they want to use the CLL14 approach with abinutuzumab instead of rituximab and the abinutuzumab first to debulk them in the recurrent setting. And then some investigators will say, well, that wasn't the way the trial was done. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think this is a very interesting question. And I think it's pretty clear that obinutuzumab is a better anti-CD20 antibody in CLL than rituximab. And one would anticipate that if that study had been done with obinutuzumab, it probably would have looked better. And I think it depends on who you talk to. Some people are very dogmatic about following the data. I think it is very tempting to replace rituximab with obinutuzumab and sort of look for reasons to do that, an infusion reaction or something to say, well, why don't we do obinutuzumab? And again, when you do that, do you do the obinutuzumab first? Yeah, I think anything that we can do to mitigate the risk of TLS and treat patients in the outpatient setting, particularly during COVID, makes sense. How about this next paper? There's a bunch of stuff looking at BTK plus venetoclax at ASH. This is a Brutinib plus venetoclax. I think this data from Bill Weirda at MD Anderson looks very compelling. So these are upfront patients who were treated with the combination of a Brutinib lead-in and then a Brutinib plus venetoclax. If they were MRD negative, they were randomized to a Brutinib or placebo. If they were MRD positive, they got either a Brutinib or a Brutinib plus venetoclax. And you can see below the patients who were confirmed MRD negative and not. And when you look at the progression-free survival of the randomized patients who are MRD negative, it looks very good with a one-year disease-free survival rate of 95 and 100%, which is quite impressive. And when you look at the patients who are MRD positive and got the combination, you can see the MRD negativity rates rising are higher in the patients with the combination. And in the bottom here, the 30-month PFS for all of these groups is over 95%. So I think this is really this and a couple of the following abstracts that we're going to look at with three drug combinations up front really look durable remissions. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens over time in terms of where the field goes. So this was the similar study in the relapse and refractory setting from the UK Clarity trial. And this one is a little bit complicated in terms of continuing on. They used MRD to determine how long patients would stay on venetoclax and abrutinib. This was a study of 54 patients and about 20% of the patients had 17P deletion. If you look at the grade three or higher toxicity, mostly neutropenia with low rates of FNN, about 40% of patients were MRD negative in the bone marrow. 
And what they showed here in the bottom with all of this basically suggested that patients who had rapid development of MRD negativity did better. And the 36-month progression-free survival here in the relapse setting is 96%. So again, really highlighting that these multidrug options may be where we're headed in this disease. So two drug regimens, now moving on to three drugs. This was Jennifer Woyak from Ohio State, looked at acalabrutinib and venetoclax with obinutuzumab in patients who were untreated and rituximab in patients who had been previously treated. These were relatively small numbers, 12 patients in each cohort, relatively high risk with sort of what we see across all these studies, 20 to 30% 17P deletion, and the majority of patients are unmutated. And here you can see the overall response rates, 100%, with 33 and 50% of patients having complete remissions, higher in the treatment naive, and very respectable MRD negativity in peripheral blood at cycle 10. The combination was well tolerated. You can see low rates of grade 3 toxicity, particularly neutropenia, which we often see early on. And the 18-month progression-free survival was 100% in both cohorts. This is a similar phase two study that is currently ongoing at our group, presented by Matt Davids, combining obinutuzumab, acalabrutinib, and venetoclax. And the MRD was used to determine whether patients would come off therapy. There are 44 patients treated here, and almost 40% of patients had any 17P deletion or TP53 mutations. And again, this is pretty early on, but you see that the CRs improve over time and really all of the patients are responding both in the whole group and in the high-risk group. And again, at the bottom, you can see the MRD analysis and the MRD in marrow and peripheral blood very high at the end of treatment. This was well-tolerated and patients did not develop a clinical TRS when the venetoclax was ramped up in the usual fashion and really relatively low rates of infection and neutropenia. I'm just kind of curious where you see these combination strategies, BTK, venetoclax, anti-CD20 landing. Do you think that is the way we're going to end up or not? I think given the compelling data that the MRD negativity correlates with progression-free survival and the fact that we can give time-limited therapy and really get very, very deep remissions, I suspect we will be using more of these multiple drug combinations and then taking patients off treatment for periods of time. I think it's very appealing. These are expensive drugs. If people can get time-limited therapy and then go about living their lives, I think that's going to be a very patient-friendly strategy that looks very efficacious. So, I mean, I guess you could say you could do time-limited therapy just with CLL-14 and then use BTK after that or venetoclax again. Yes. And I think that's definitely an argument for those strategies. And I think we're going to have to do some randomized studies with the appropriate endpoints, looking at toxicity, patient preference, and quality of life assessments to try to figure out what is really the optimal frontline approach with so many active. It's really quite remarkable how much this field has changed. Yeah, and speaking of which, LOXO305, this was Anthony Mato again presented this data from the Bruin study. LOXO305 is a non-covalent BTK inhibitor. This was data from the safety population. You can see about a quarter of patients had the C4D1 mutations and about 30% were high risk. And nearly all patients had had prior BTK inhibitors. There were a few patients who had had stem cell transplant or CAR T-cell therapy the overall response rate was 63%. And if you look at the bottom, I think it's interesting to note that the responses increase over time. So for the 29 patients who had been on therapy longer, rose to 86%. The progression-free survival is shown there and looks very favorable, though this is relatively short follow-up and an ongoing study. I think what's also really interesting about this drug is the toxicity profile. If you look at the grade three or four toxicity, there's really less than 1% fatigue, and that was it. And from hearing investigators talking about treating patients with this drug, we had this study open, but I haven't treated anybody. The patients really tolerate it extremely well. So I think the question's then going to obviously become, where does this get incorporated? Does this replace our covalent BTK inhibitors, particularly given the toxicity profile? So in other words, maybe first line? Yeah, they really have 
excellent activity. It'd be very interesting to see what the response rates are in previously untreated patients. I kind of wonder what kind of phase three trial you'd need to prove it's better than a calibrutinib. And maybe again, it would be a sort of non-inferiority type of approach and then looking at toxicity. But again, a calibrutinib is less toxic than ebrutinib. I don't know if it would be more toxic than something like Loxo. What's your guess? This toxicity profile is shocking in some ways with nothing in that grade three, four line. And I think if you had a drug that you didn't have to hold for procedures and other things, it would be very easy to use. I think if the efficacy held up, I would expect that it would probably replace. And these are all responses in patients who've had prior, vast majority have had prior BTK inhibitors. So really fascinating drug. That is amazing. So this is the U2 study. Umbrilisib is a novel PI3 kinase inhibitor combined with ublituximab, which is a glycoengineered CD20 antibody. And this was compared to chlorambucil plus obinutuzumab in previously untreated and relapsed and refractory patients. The patients who received umbrilisib and ublituximab got continuous therapy compared to six months of chlorambucil and obinutuzumab. So I think we could guess what this is going to look like. If you take a look at the overall population, about 200 patients in each arm, they're well-balanced. In the bottom, there are the 90 patients in each arm who had relapsed or refractory disease. And the majority of these patients who were previously treated had had chemoimmunotherapy as opposed to BTK inhibitors. The overall response rates obviously were higher in the U2 arm across treatment naive and previously untreated, as well as those who'd had prior BTK, and the progression-free survival was about 39 months in the U2 arm compared to 26 in the obinutuzumab plus chlorambucil benefit and PFS again in the relapse and refractory setting. In terms of toxicity, transaminases and colitis, pneumonitis are things we worry about with PI3 kinase inhibitors and the grade three or higher. We're really relatively low, though the overall was 17% ALT. I think this is interesting data. It is a registration trial. It's sort of surprising that they use this comparator arm in a previously treated patient population, particularly where we have data showing an overall survival benefit in Murano versus chemoimmunotherapy. And here we're using obinutuzumab plus chlorambucil. So I don't know how we think about this with the other studies that we've seen with BTK inhibitors. I think we'll see combinations coming forward. Our group is doing, Jennifer Brown is leading a study combining acalabrutinib plus U2, and I think that's an appealing potential option. What about umbrilisib as a single agent? Do you see that fitting in the algorithm anywhere? I really don't think so. I think when you look at these response rates with combination look good. I mean, obviously you can't compare across studies, but they're not median PFS of 38.5 months up front compared to some of the other data we've seen today, I think doesn't necessarily compare incredibly favorably. And if you drop the ublituximab, which is clearly adding something, I don't think so. I think it's going to be combinations. And if the drug is really less toxic than other PI3 kinase inhibitors, that would be an improvement. Moving on here, this was a study from our center from Jennifer Crombie looking at duvalisib plus venetoclax in patients with relapse refractory disease or Richter's. They start on the duvalisib and then ramp up on the venetoclax. This is an ongoing study, 19 patients with CLL, SLL, and three patients with Richter's. You can see these are obviously a high-risk patient population. This is early on, but there was no DLT during phase one, and the phase two dose of duvalisib was 25 with 400 of Ven. And you can see that the vast majority of patients responded, and those responses improved by cycle seven, and then continue on. When you look at the MRD negativity, it's about 60% at cycle 13. The toxicity is what you would, again, expect with predominantly hematologic toxicity with the combination and was quite manageable. So I think we'll need to see longer-term follow-up of this combination, but I think the preliminary data looks very good. So what about the possibility of adding PI3 kinase to, say, venetoclax plus anti-CD20? Is that being looked at? I'm sure that's being looked at. I don't know. I can't think off the top of my head of a study that's looking at that, but I think that would be a very reasonable combination and likely very active. So let's talk about CAR-T. 
cell CAR T. There were two CAR T cell studies that we'll talk about. This is the first. This is with lysocaptogene merilucil in patients with relapse and refractory CLL. This is the study that Tanya Siddiqui presented with just lysocell. These were patients who had had at least two prior therapies and high-risk disease or more than three prior therapies, all comers, and 22 patients. This is early on. You can see the demographics here. The median LDH was 235, and you can see one ranging up to 1956. You really wonder whether some of these patients could have had Richter's at the time of being enrolled. Very high-risk population, the majority of whom had had progression on BTK inhibitors. And here, if you look at the overall response rate, was about 82%, with 68% of patients achieving a complete remission. The median progression-free survival was 18. The group, the subgroup below, were patients who, in the orange curve, had had prior BTK and venetoclax. At 12 months, 50% of patients were in response. They did see of the six progression, four had Richter's transformation. When you look at the safety, cytokine release of grade three or higher was 9% and neurotoxicity of 22%. And you also get a good sense of the toxicity based on how they were managed. And 35% of patients got tocilizumab and steroids. So this is relatively early. This is a very high-risk patient population. And again, one wonders how many of these patients really had Richter's transformation at baseline, which those patients do poorly regardless. But I think this looked interesting. And then the next abstract presented by Bill Weirda added abrutinib in addition to lysocaptogene merilucil. There were 19 patients here. There were two dose levels. And again, this is a high-risk, high, high-risk patient population. And here, when you look at the overall response rate in dose level two was 100%, with 67% of patients achieving a complete remission rate. The rates were a little bit lower in dose level one. The MRD is presented here, and 80% were MRD negative in marrow. The responses, again, are very early. When you look at toxicity here, it looked maybe even a little less, though hard to compare across, and only 16% of patients received tocilizumab and steroids, 16% grade 3 neurotoxicity. So I thought this is a very interesting study. I mean, I think it's hard to compare this to the other one, and what is the added contribution of the abrutinib, but I think hopefully we'll see a lot more data looking at this approach in relapse and refractory disease. What is the idea behind using ebrutinib? Is it just a direct anti-CLL effect or the immune effect or both? I think it's both. I think there's consideration that it may enhance the activity of the CAR-T, and it seems safe here. Right now, based on the data that we have in CLL, are there situations, of course, obviously you're talking about a trial, but from a clinical point of view, what kind of situations, if any, Right now, do you think it would be justifiable to try to get a patient to receive CAR-T? I think in the third-line setting, patients who are progressing after a BTK and venetoclax, those are patients we really worry about and in the past would have tried to get to allogeneic stem cell transplantation. So I think this is going to, that's really what we're comparing to in our minds. And if this looks good with a lot less long-term toxicity, it'd be very exciting to have this as an option. And I'm curious also what you think in terms of the responses that are being seen. Actually, I remember interviewing David Porter some years ago when CAR-T was just coming out. He was actually presenting. I think the first patient he gave it to was a patient with CLL who I guess did great. But now that we have data from anti-CD19 and other situations, diffuse large B-cell, mantle cell, how do you think CLL is going to play out in terms of CAR-T? I think it may have less of a role given how active our other therapies are. I think this is a disease with a much longer natural history for many patients compared to when you have primary refractory or early relapse, DLBCL or BTK failures in mantle cell. Those patients do very poorly. And I think for CLL, because we have such good other options and we have a lot of clinical trials going on, and these are labor-intensive to take patients to CAR-T. So I think we're going to have to see how it fits into the treatment algorithms, though some of those patients from Penn remain in remission years later. So I think that's where we really need the data. How durable are these? And if patients are long-term remitters in the third line, I think that would be a game-changer. Interesting. So let's go on and talk about follicular lymphoma. 
So for follicular lymphoma, there was this analysis of the MAGNIFY study. This was patients with relapse or refractory follicular or marginal zone lymphoma who got lenalidomide plus rituximab and then were randomized to rituximab or the combination. This was an analysis to look at the tolerability and the efficacy in patients over 70. And the numbers are here, 152 patients who were 70 or older. There were about 80% who had follicular and about 20% who had marginal zone lymphoma. And as you can see, sort of across the board, both the efficacy and safety look very similar. The overall incomplete response rates look very similar, 75% overall response rate, about 40% complete remission rates, maybe a little higher CR rate in the younger patients, but these are more in the more patients who are under 70. PFS looks extremely similar. And when you look at toxicity, again, there did not appear to be a signal that these were, this was a combination that is not appropriate for our older patients. So just kind of curious about R-squared in general. It seems like a lot of people are using it uh, second line. There are some who use it first line. But one of the issues is if you're going to use it, how you use it and how long you use it for. Any thoughts or comments? I like the time-limited augment trial. I think that was a randomized study. I think that data is very good. I think it's appealing to use time-limited therapy with lenalidomide. You do worry about secondary malignancies and long-term toxicity. So I think most of us use it in that way and show some data for tazimetastat, which is a new drug that we need to figure out where in the algorithm that should be. So speaking of that, now let's talk about this paper looking at tazimetastat. So this was from GLSAL looking at subgroups within the phase two study that led to its approval. And if you recall here, there were two cohorts, those who are wild type and the mutated groups. And the mutated group had a overall response rate of about double that 70% versus 35%. But interestingly, the duration of response and median PFS were similar in both groups. So in terms of overall response rate, looking at whether patients had had fewer than two two or more than two prior lines of therapy versus looking at patients who have early progression within the first two years, which we know is associated with inferior overall survival, you could see that there was no difference in responses with tazimetastat. But when they looked at progression-free survival according to being refractory to rituximab, the PFS was significantly higher in patients who were not refractory, 19 versus eight months. Also, in looking at PFS by LDH, there was a significant difference there as well. You always wonder in these patients who have a high LDH with follicular lymphoma, are you missing a cult transformation? When you look at the forest plot here for progression-free survival, again, the rituximab refractoriness really stands out, but it's certainly reassuring to know that the POD24 patients and patients who had had prior autotransplant did well with this drug. Again, with this drug, one of the, we'll look at tolerability in the next abstract, but is very favorable. What about the use of this agent in patients who are wild type for EZH2 as opposed to those who have mutations, and how does that get translated to practice? I think we're just beginning to get experience with this drug and testing for the mutational status, but with the progression-free survival looking similar in both arms, I think it's a reasonable drug to try in either setting. And particularly if you have an elderly patient who has comorbidities, I think this is a very appealing drug. Could you go back and talk a little bit more about the mechanism of how this drug works and in your experience, how patients tolerate it? So this targets EZH2, which is important for the maturation of B cells as they move through the germinal center. So there is rationale to think both normal and mutated may be affected by this pathway. And to be honest, I have not treated anyone with this drug yet. We're trying to get the diagnostic companion EZH2 testing set up, but certainly thinking about it because the data looks very compelling. And I think probably will incorporate this in third line, probably in advance of using a PI3 kinase inhibitor. Interesting. Are there trials looking at it earlier? Yeah, I think there are a lot of trials that we'll see looking at this earlier and in combination, particularly given its toxicity profile. It's really an ideal drug to combine with other approaches. All right. So let's go on to this next paper. 
So I thought this was an interesting comparison of toxicity using this technique of matching adjusted indirect comparison across multiple studies. So it looked at tazimidostat versus the three approved PI3 kinase inhibitors, idelalisib, duvalisib, and copanlisib. And you can see when they looked at adverse events that led to dose reduction or discontinuation or interruption, comparing tazimidostat to each of the PI3 kinase inhibitors, you could see a significant benefit to tazimidostat versus these drugs. And when you drill down and look at what are the toxicities that were worried about, diarrhea is a big one, and you can see really no diarrhea with tazimidostat, where this is grade three or higher, 20% with idella, duvalisib, lower with copanlisib. The transaminitis is really seen in idelalisib and duvalisib. Neutropenia can be seen in all of these agents, and again, looked better with tazimidostat. So I think this really supports our considering this as third-line treatment. We'll see whether there'll be any comparison with lenalidomide, but I think for some patients, this may ultimately be a really good, who knows, second-line agent. I guess the other thing in terms of advantages over existing drugs, you mentioned copanlisib. But also copanlisib, you see a lot of hyperglycemia, which obviously you don't see here. I don't know if you had any experience with copanlisib. I've heard some kind of daunting glucose cases, so to speak. Yeah, that's a good point, and I didn't highlight that. 40% versus 1%, that's obviously a very significant difference. So I've used copanlisib on a handful of occasions. I think for some patients in whom you want to really follow them closely, giving an IV drug can be advantageous for that reason. And we pick patients who don't have uncontrolled hyperglycemia. Metformin seems to be a good option for managing that. They can also get hypertension. That's the other one. And that can be managed with calcium channel blockers. So you have to watch them carefully. Fortunately, the hyperglycemia and hypertension tend to occur around the time of the infusion. But again, these are relatively new drugs. So I think we need more clinical experience to see how it plays out over time and to really confirm that it's manageable. So how about parsaclisib, another PI3 kinase inhibitor? So this is another second-generation PI3 kinase inhibitor, which was studied in relapse or refractory follicular lymphoma, and they looked at weekly and daily dosing and ultimately chose the daily dosing as the preferred regimen. There were 125 patients here who had received two or more prior therapies, and you can see here their relatively typical population of patients with relapsed follicular lymphoma. The overall response rate is about 75%, which looks maybe definitely compares well, if not a little better, to the other drugs tested in phase two setting. But again, we can't compare across studies. If you look at the dose modifications, happened relatively frequently an eruption in about 47% of patients with discontinuation in 20%. The grade three diarrhea is fortunately relatively rare and did improve relatively quickly. And if you look at the progression-free survival, it looks very similar here to the others with a median of 15.8 months, maybe a little bit longer. But again, that may be related to patient selection as opposed to a more active drug. So I think this is a class of drugs that we have a lot of experience with, and this one looks relatively similar to the others. So moving on to Zuma 5, this was presented by Karen Jacobson from our group in relapsed refractory follicular and marginal zone lymphoma. There were 124 patients with follicular lymphoma, 22 with marginal zone lymphoma. The overall response rates are very high at 92%, with the majority of patients achieving a complete remission. If you look across disease type, it certainly appears more active in follicular lymphoma than marginal zone lymphoma, but relatively small number of marginal zone lymphoma patients here. When you look at the progression-free survival here, uh, 12 months in follicular is 78% and 45% in marginal zone lymphoma. Interestingly, when you look at the CRS, grade three or higher, it certainly looks lower than with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma at less than 10%. The neurologic toxicity, I think, is intriguing here, about 15% in the follicular lymphoma patients, but 41% in the marginal zone lymphoma patients. And again, small numbers, but it's certainly interesting that these patients seem to have more of an inflammatory milieu or something, something different about marginal zone lymphoma patients. But I think overall, 
this data looks great and is at the FDA. So hopefully this will be available for our relapsed and refractory patients with follicular lymphoma. And then this was the ALARA study, which looks at Tisagen Lewis-Slusel, relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma, about 97 patients here. You can see these are more than 75% of patients were refractory to their last line of therapy, and over 40% of patients required bridging therapy, which tells you the burden of their disease. And here, the overall response rate was also quite high at 82%, 83% with 65% complete remissions with progression-free survival noted here, and at six months was 73%, so earlier, and we need longer-term follow-up for this study. As has been seen in the other studies, the CRS and neurologic toxicity here, greater than grade three or higher, were very, very low, so this is a safe construct. So interesting. So again, in FL, where do you see CAR-T heading? You said we're going to see an approval soon. What kind of patients would you be thinking about this for? So I think the relapsed refractory patients who've had two prior therapies, I'd love to see some data in those POD24. I think that group of patients we know historically has not done well. When we look at some of these novel drugs, they seem to be very active in the POD24 patients. So I think we need to understand that better before we should be saying that they should go to CAR T-cell earlier. But I think in the third line, this is a very good approach. What about the criteria to get CAR T therapy? Does a patient need to be in same similar condition to get a transplant or can you use it for older patients with poor performance status? Particularly in follicular lymphoma, given the toxicity profile looking better, we certainly take, even in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, we would take a patient in whom we would not consider an autotransplant who might be over 75. We would consider that patient for CAR-T if they were otherwise an appropriate candidate. So I think we will see this as an option in that range of patient age. And as long as they had reasonable comorbidity status, I think it's a good option. You've heard a couple times now to POD24. Can you elaborate a little bit on what that is and what some of the strategies are in clinical trials that are being used right now? So this was data that was originally published out of Rochester with Carla Casulo and Jonathan Friedberg, which showed that patients who progress within the first two years of therapy for follicular lymphoma have significantly worse overall survival than patients who do not. And this has led to a U.S. intergroup study looking at, a randomized study looking at this group of patients. It's about 20% of patients overall and randomizing them to umbrilisib plus obinutuzumab, obinutuzumab plus CHOP, or obinutuzumab plus lenalidomide. This study is accruing relatively slowly because it is a relatively infrequent patient population. But I think we need to understand is that POD24 really an issue when you're treating patients with chemoimmunotherapy? And is there one of those strategies going to be more effective? That's really interesting. Are you putting patients on that study? We are not participating in that particular study, given that we had some other competing studies that were in-house. But it is a U.S. intergroup study that is slowly, slowly accruing. It's been open for several years now. And there are some interesting correlatives looking at the M7 Flippy to see if that, looking at mutations that are associated with worse outcome in follicular lymphoma to see if there's any signal there to really try to identify which of these patients we need to be more worried about and what are the optimal therapeutic options. So let's finish out with mosinituzumab. So mosinituzumab is the bispecific antibody CD20, CD3. We saw some of this data at ASH last year. This is a group of 62 patients treated with mosinituzumab with relapsed or refractory follicular lymphoma with at least two prior, two or more prior therapies. The drug is given as a step up during the first cycle to reduce cytokine release syndrome. And then patients are treated on day one of the subsequent cycles. Again, here you can see POD24, almost half of patients, more than half of patients are refractory to rituximab and alkylators. And the majority were refractory to the last therapy. And you can see here for overall response rate is more than 65% with more than half of patients achieving a complete remission. And these responses are across 
all of these various high-risk groups, including for patients who'd had prior CAR T-cell therapy. In terms of tolerability, neutropenia can be seen when you look at CRS. You can see grade one or two, but the step-up seems to mitigate that, and there were no cases of grade three or higher cytokine release syndrome. And overall, and the cytokine release syndrome typically happens early when you initiate therapy. And there were a number of other bispecifics that were presented at the meeting. It's hard to compare. I don't know how these will play out over time, if there's really a difference between them, but I think we're seeing a lot of studies being designed, incorporating these with rituximab plus chemo, both in follicular lymphoma and in aggressive lymphomas, both in the upfront and relapse setting. Can you talk a little bit more about the mechanism of action? So these bind to CD20 and bring the patient's own T cells to the tumor cells to cause cell killing. So in some ways, there are some similarities to CAR-T, and I think there's a lot of speculation as to how these agents will compare to CAR-T. Some of them are given for very long periods of time, and how does that compare to get your CAR-T cell once versus being on these more prolonged courses of the bispecific antibodies, but I think we're just beginning to understand the activity of these drugs, and it'll be very interesting to see how they compare. So I guess you can see CRS and neurotoxicity with these agents? You can occasionally see neurotoxicity, though it tends to be low-grade and not the same type of neurotoxicity that we see with CAR-T. How about the CRS? I get the idea that it's not, again, not as severe as what you see with CAR-T. They don't need to come in the hospital or ICU. It depends on which agent, but typically it is not as severe as what we see with CAR-T. And particularly with these strategies to increase the dose slowly or load patients up, they have an easier way to mitigate it because they can give it over prolonged periods of time as opposed to CAR-T with the one-shot infusion of the cells. Where do you see these agents, including mosinituzumab, landing in the near future? I think they're going to move up in the course of therapy. And I think one wonders if you have patients who've been treated with bendamustine, for instance, which has impacts on T-cells and patients who've had multiple prior lines of therapy, what is the robustness of those T-cells? We don't really know the answer to that. And I think that's a question in CAR T-cell therapy as well. And I think using it earlier in the course of treatment may make sense. Giving them with steroids doesn't seem to interfere with their activity, but I think that's another question. So I think we're going to see a lot of investigational trials incorporating these therapies much sooner in the course of treatment. So any predictions about what we're going to see over the next year in CLL and FL? Of course, we talked about the big trial comparing Acala to Ibrutinib. That's going to be of great interest. What are some of the other research directions, new trials, et cetera, that you think will be coming out in these two diseases over the next year? So I think in CLL, we'll see more data with these three drug combinations and looking at MRD. I think that's going to be important. I think we'll see more data from LOXO305 to look at those responses over time and do they deepen and how durable they are. And more data on the other end of the spectrum on the relapse refractory patients. I think the area that we, in CLL, that is our biggest problem is Richter's transformation. And I think that remains a huge unmet need. I think those patients don't do well, probably with CAR T-cell. They don't seem to do well with almost anything unless they've never been treated before and just have been on observation and then transform. Those patients may do better. In follicular lymphoma, I think it'll be interesting to see how these other by specifics look. Hopefully, CAR T-cell will be approved, and I think it'll be interesting to see how we start to sequence things and combine some of these novel drugs like tazimetostat with chemotherapy to really try in follicular, like in CLL, maybe use some of our novel agents in combination up front and get away from using bendamustine as our initial therapy or other chemotherapy combinations like CHOP. You mentioned Richter's transformation. Just kind of curious what the typical scenario is that you see with these patients, how you usually manage them. You talked about research not being that productive. What about checkpoint inhibitors? I've heard a little bit about that. So a few thoughts about Richter's. 
I mean, I can tell you the story of a patient of mine who has Richter's now. Unfortunately, she's in Florida, so I have not been able to see her, but she had had bendamustine plus rituximab back around 2007 and had done very well for some period of time and then developed fevers and was basically told she needed to be seen locally. She shouldn't come to the cancer center because of concern she could have COVID and sort of got the runaround and eventually was seen and was pancytopenic, platelets less than 20, very anemic, and her LDH was 1,000. And this is how these patients present. It's usually quite dramatic. They have either a high LDH, rapidly progressive adenopathy, or sometimes they have circulating disease. They are sick. And you know something's wrong just from hearing the clinical story before you even get a biopsy. And patients who've been previously treated, if you give them standard chemotherapy, RCHOP, it's often poorly tolerated because these patients have poor marrow reserve. And it's honestly just not terribly effective. So Matt Davids in our group has a study combining venetoclax with RCHOP. He had done a prior study looking at dosagested REPOC with venetoclax, but REPOC is difficult to give in this patient population because they have poor counts and they get febrile neutropenia. They can get quite sick. So it's really a very difficult problem to treat. With regard to the checkpoint inhibitors, initially there was a report out of MD Anderson looking relatively favorable. I think over time, single-agent checkpoint inhibitors have not really panned out from what I know, but there are some ongoing combination studies. There's a study at our place using checkpoint inhibitor plus copanlisib. So hoping that those types of combining novel agents with chemotherapy may be helpful. I have a patient who was fortunate to get to an allogeneic transplant with Richter. She had enough of a response, relapsed after, and then got rip-roaring GVH, and we put her on venetoclax and got a CD20 antibody for her GVH, and she has remained in remission. She's one of the very few patients I have who has had a Richter's transformation who's done well. I think the Richter's Hodgkin transformations do significantly better than the diffuse large B-cell lymphoma patients. The biology there is different, and it's just not as aggressive a disease. Interesting. You were mentioning COVID, and the last thing I want to chat with you about is how COVID both in terms of the need for social distancing, questions about resources, in terms of being able to admit people, vaccine considerations. What are some of the issues that you are thinking about in terms of COVID and CLL and FL? And there was stuff that Ash presented. We didn't go through any of the papers, but a lot of people are looking at this and talking about it. So I think particularly our CLL patients, we worry a lot about with COVID. They tend not to do well. Patients who are on anti-CD20 antibodies in combination with chemotherapy also seem to clear the virus poorly. And I've had patients with Hodgkin lymphoma or patients with other lymphomas where they're not getting any CD20 antibodies who've done okay with COVID, though they're younger. So I think clearly these patients are at high risk. I think we've been trying to treat them and bring them in the clinic. I think we've got Most centers have good protocols in place to keep patients safe when they come into the clinic. I think it's really the community spread that we're seeing. And I think the vaccines, we have no idea what patients' response to vaccines are going to be. And there's been so much discussion on this. ASH and the NCCN are trying to put together guidelines. And I think right now in our own institution, the guidance is just vaccinate everybody, regardless of what therapy they're getting, except for patients who've had stem cell transplant or CAR-T, we're waiting three months. Is that a smart strategy? I'm not sure, because we know rituximab interferes with response to standard vaccines like the flu vaccine. So we're giving it to patients. I think our main worry is that patients are going to feel that they're protected and maybe change their behaviors. That's what I worry about. I don't think we're going to hurt patients by giving them a vaccine that may not be effective unless they go out and then get COVID because they're not covered. So I think a lot of places are doing small pilot studies. I know we have a small pilot study and talking to people on a call the other day, it sounds like every institution is doing the same thing and testing baseline levels and then response to the vaccine over time so that we can really get a sense of, are we doing the right thing by vaccinating people across the board? I think for now it makes sense to do it, but it's a limited resource, at least in many parts of the country right now. And You don't want to waste it. And I think we really can make people feel falsely reassured that they're covered and do a lot of talking to patients to try to make sure that they do not change their social distancing and mask 
behaviors. How about IVIG? Where does that fit in in terms of vaccinations? You mean for patients who are on gamma globulin, should we be? Yes. Mm -hmm. Just keep it going given the vaccination? Yeah. I mean, I think that has been what we've done all along. I don't know if that's a good strategy or not. It would be great to get some more data on that as well. Do you find patients delaying who you're already treating, delaying telling you about side effects and complications because of fear? I've heard docs say that patients are afraid they're going to get sent to an ER and get exposed to COVID, et cetera. And people have said to me, I think patients are coming in with more complications from treatment. Have you observed that? I personally have not, though. I've had, I guess, a little bit. I think we have really convinced our patients that if they need to go to the emergency department, they need to go to the emergency department and that the protocol, everybody gets tested the minute they set foot in there. And there have been really very few cases of nosocomial exposures to COVID. So it hasn't been a huge issue. The conversations that we hear, what we're not hearing and behaviors, maybe we're missing some of those and patients just aren't telling us that's certainly possible. This concludes our program. Special thanks to Dr. Lacasse, and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for Oncology Today.